Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the first Physics World weekly podcast of 2024. I'm Hamish Johnston, and on behalf of all my colleagues here at Physics World, I'd like to wish you all the best for whatever the new year brings. 2024 looks set to be another banner year for quantum science and technology. So we thought that we would kick things off with an interview with the founder of a company that has created a technology that exploits the inherent randomness of the quantum world. Random numbers are used in several important technologies, including cryptography and numerical simulations. However, large sequences of truly random numbers are, are notoriously difficult to generate, and correlations lurking within sequences can have dire consequences. Fortunately, quantum technologies offer a way forward. And to explain how, I'm joined down the line from Oxford by Rami Shalbaya, who is Chief Executive Officer at Quantum Dice. This is a UK-based startup that uses quantum optics to generate random numbers. Hi, Rami. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Rami, cryptography is, is probably the most important use of uh, random number sequences. How are they used um, to keep messages and data secret? Yeah, so random numbers are actually one of the primary building blocks uh, in cryptography. So when we think about cryptography, our minds usually go to the sort of things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Things like a firewall, VPN, maybe if, if you're a little bit more knowledgeable on the technical side, you think about different encryption protocols. But really, like any other element of computing, uh, cryptography is a stack. And at the bottom of that stack, on the infrastructure level, are all of the building blocks that make cryptography happen. And one of the most important building blocks is that of randomness. And that's because every encryption algorithm that we have, and we're talking about everything from the most primitive Caesar cipher to the most complex post-quantum encryption algorithm, they all require encryption keys that are truly random. And the security and the quality of an encryption key is directly tied to that randomness. Think of it as a little bit like your password. Your password is only as good as it is hard to guess. And it's similarly the case with encryption keys. The harder it is to predict what an encryption key is going to be, the more difficult it is it's going to be to break a specific encryption algorithm. And, and that sort of makes sense, right? Because if I already know the key, it doesn't matter how good the lock is, I can always open it. I think um, a lot of people might be surprised that um, truly random numbers are very difficult to create because, of course, we're we're surrounded by processes that seem to be random to us. Um, so, how are random numbers generated today, and and what are the shortcomings of of the current techniques? Yes, I, I mean you're absolutely right on that. Uh, things around us do seem to be. Random. However, what we need to remember also is that things like computers or devices that we use in our communications uh, in the day-to-day -day world, they're designed to work and function as predictably as possible. One of the things that computer engineers and electronic designers 
do best is to try to reduce the amount of noise, to reduce the amount of unpredictability in any particular computing system. So over the past 100 years, we've been working hard to basically get computers to work as reliably and as predictably as possible. But that means also that it's very difficult for us to get them to act unpredictably. But more importantly than that is that it's not enough for something to be unpredictable because not all unpredictable uh, phenomena are equally random. Think about it like this. If you throw a die versus if you toss a coin, both of these things have seemingly random outcomes. However, randomness is not a binary. One of them is harder to predict than the other. You have a 50% chance of getting a fair coin right, but you only have a 16, about a 16% chance of getting a fair die correctly. And that is the core difference here, is that even if and even when we do manage to get some unpredictable behavior going, that's not enough because we need to know exactly how unpredictable it is. Now, going back to how things are used at the moment, in almost all current applications of cybersecurity, you're going to have a randomness source that's usually made of some kind of noisy hardware, more often than not a piece of microelectronic circuitry that acts in a way that's a little bit unpredictable. And that small seed of noise gets then fed into a software that is designed to use some mathematical equations to generate a stream of randomness from that. This is what we call a pseudo-random number generator. And as you can already guess from the name, it doesn't imply a lot of quality. But it, more importantly, the problem starts right at the core. Even with that source of randomness, that source of seed, you don't know how much unpredictability is getting produced. So you don't know if you're getting a coin or if you're getting a die. But that is a very important distinction if you want to build a proper encryption algorithm. And, and is the problem that um, you can create these pseudo random numbers, but a, a clever person can sort of analyze them and, and, and find patterns. Um, so patterns meaning that they're not truly random and then use that information to, um, to, uh, to, to, to crack a, a cryptographic system. Is that the, is that the concern? That's one of the problems. So one of the problems is definitely to do with uh, what if we are using these kind of pseudo random number generators, what happens if somebody can actually manage to figure out what's the what is the mathematical equation underpinning it, as, as I said, because underneath them, there's just a just some math uh, or some of the parameters of that equation. And in fact, people have worked hard to try to use backdoors to try to use even machine learning try to figure out if there is any discernible way of figuring out what the math behind this uh, pseudo-random number generator is. However, it's not the only problem. Uh, although it was critical, so early in, uh, in, about, in about 2013, there was a big uh, sort of um, controversy surrounding a particular type of pseudo-random number generator that was supposedly cryptographically secure, and then people found out that it actually had a backdoor in it which allowed anybody with access to that backdoor to completely break any kind of encryption that it's relying on. But even if you don't have that, even if you don't go through the route of trying to figure out how the math works, and, and that is something that is getting progressively more complex, there's still a problem with the underlying generation of that initial seed, of that noise that you need to use. Because all of this math is dependent on you getting the appropriate amount of initial randomness, even if you're going to take that approach. 
Uh, and the core problem here is that with physical systems, as you know, they don't necessarily act in a way that's consistent all the time. But the problem is you're already trying to look at a random signal. So how do you know if the inconsistency is coming from the fact that it's random or from the fact that there's a problem? And this and, and, and this is a critical, <laughs> That's quite this a conundrum. Is, yeah. And it's a, it's a critical bit, right? Because what you need, and this is something that we like to, like to say a lot when we describe this, what you really need is predictable unpredictability. And that's not easy to get. Okay. So, so you've laid out the problem. What, what, what have you and your colleagues at, at Quantum Dice done to, to, to find a solution? Well, we worked on tackling specifically that core issue, right? Because a lot of times people look at quantum mechanics and they see some inherent unpredictability in there. And that's absolutely right, right? The core fundamental uh, object of study in quantum mechanics, the wave function, is just a way of expressing how likely or not certain events are. So it has probabilities sort of baked into it from the first, from the beginning. So people, a lot of people thought, okay, fine. So if I use a quantum system that I'm, I'm guaranteed to get some high quality randomness, but you're still not addressing the problem because the problem isn't just qualitative. It is truly quantitative. It's about how much randomness is being generated. And that's the core of the solution that our technology is, uh, is giving. So our main uh, piece of uh, architecture is what we call the source device independent self-certification protocol. And as you can tell by, by it, it's a name coined by physicists. So it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty long and unwieldy one. So we like to call it DISC. Now what this is, is basically it's leveraging certain interesting properties in quantum architectures that allow you to not just produce unpredictable results or truly unpredictable results, but also verify exactly how unpredictable they are. Give a specific quantitative measure of how much true unpredictability, true randomness is available in the system at a given point. And this then allows us to extract this unpredictability and use it to generate the randomness that uh, we are producing for our end users. And the, the system that you've developed um, can deliver random numbers at uh, uh, seven and a half gigabits per second. Why is it important to, to have random numbers available um, at such a high speed? So it depends on the application that you're looking to do. Right, so uh, the current system that you're talking about, the 7.5 gigabits per second, is in fact the fastest system that's currently available in the world. And there is a reason why this is important. It's because sometimes you need randomness to be local, to be something that you're just generating on one particular device. And in that case, you don't generally need gigabits of second, uh, gigabits of randomness per second. But sometimes you need to be centralized. Sometimes you're working in at the core, for example, of a telecommunication network, where there's a lot of data being transmitted one way or another, and you need a lot of keys to be transmitted to all of your different edges of your network. And this is one of the applications uh, that where a high speed of generation is actually critical to the use of the system. Because if you don't have that, then you might have to reuse keys, which is very bad. It's almost as bad as having a bad key in the, in the first place. Uh, if, if you have a good key, but you keep reusing it, then you have a bad key, basically. And also now, with more with the progress in computing power and the more advanced 
encryption algorithms coming into play, the size of a single key keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and that means we keep to have we keep having more requirements on the amount of randomness that can be produced. So it is really to do with what specific end use you are looking at. Some of them don't need a high speed, but for some of them, it is critical for them to actually be able to work. And and when you talk about um, a, a network, is that I mean. I, 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 I probably shouldn't mention something like WhatsApp specifically, but are, are you talking about that sort of so, sort of a, a telecommunication system or maybe a, a network that's operated by a bank? So, so it's good. It could be it could be a network operated by a bank. It could be a network operated by a telecommunications operator, right? So our mobile networks that exist, that's a network. So it, it's it's basically just a collection of devices that are all connected together uh, and have some kind of centralized or decentralized sometimes. Uh, approach. And depending on which one you want to take, this is where the quality and quantity of randomness is going to come into play. Okay. And in terms of deploying the technology on a, on a device, um, you and your colleagues are now working on miniaturizing your system. Um, That's absolutely right. What are the challenges that you face? I mean, am I right in thinking that your system now is done on an optical bench with you know, with lenses and lasers and things like that, and you need to squeeze that down into a into a chip. Is that the challenge, or are you halfway there? Yes, yeah, so I'll say we're a bit more than halfway there. So, like the, the bench and lenses, that was quite some time ago. That was back when it was still a research project in the university. Right now, our smallest system is uh, basically looks like a peripheral card, like a computer peripheral card. Uh, it's about this size. Which is not exactly the best for a, for a, if somebody's just listening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's about the size uh, of a mobile phone. Yeah, a, a, a large mobile phone. One of okay. those uh, yeah. extra yeah. pro uh, ones. <laughs> so uh, so basically, this is what it what it looks like at the moment. This is our smallest system. Uh, what we're working on is to, as you mentioned specifically, to make, to get it completely down to just one single chip. Now there are a lot of challenges in getting to that point, namely. Uh, one of them is our system uses photonics, as you correctly identified. It's, it, there's optical processes going there, and that means we have to put it on a photonic chip. Now, fabrication and manufacturing of photonic chip is still uh, a sort of evolving technology. It's not new in no in no way it is new. People have been doing that for a while, but it's still not at the same level of maturity as typical, you know, your typical microelectronic uh, fabrication. But it's getting there. And what's good for us is that we actually don't need that of a complex circuit. So we already have some prototypes of our, our photonic system on a chip. The question is just get it to a level where we can reliably manufacture at scale and we can reliably package and we can reliably deploy. And all of those are steps in getting to the point where we can say we actually can deploy at scale. Right? Making one chip is actually not that complex if you have the resources. The question is, can you make a million of them? And a, and, and a more difficult one is, can you make a billion of them? And that's really the scale that we have to start thinking about. If the goal is ultimately to give everyone, everywhere, access to high quality encryption. And and can you say a little bit about the about the physical process that you're harnessing? I mean, you, you know, sort of in my mind, I, I can think of a simple situation where you send a I don't know a photon through a bunch of beam splitters. 
And, um, you know, it randomly goes one way or another. And that's how you generate your random number. But I'm guessing that your, I mean, is, your, is it a linear process or is, or, or is there a nonlinear process involved or both? Uh, it's completely linear. And it's actually not that far from what you just described. Uh, there, is a, there, there are a few tricks to do this verification that we were talking about, to do this continuous ability to exactly know how much randomness is available at any one given point. Um, and that requires a certain modification to the architecture. But the core of it, you've correctly, completely correctly identified. You start with a, with a photon, you have it approach a beam slitter, and then it splits, and then you measure it. And then you figure out where, which way it went. Now, of course, it's a little bit like saying that a uh, ultimately a transistor is just uh, a way of figuring out whether electricity should pass or not, and it is. But uh, but the actual implementation, the actual scaling, the actual combination of how you put these things together is uh, is where the secret sauce is, and it's is the core of where where our patent lies. Has this sort of emerged from the idea of? what's it called, linear optical quantum computing, where you, you sort of send light into a chip and it can take any number of paths. Is, that, um, is it sort of similar to that? I wouldn't say that it, is, it emerged from it. I would say that they both came from the same initial set of physics, but, okay. uh, but it's, I wouldn't say that it emerged from it, no. Uh, it is related to it. Uh, but of course, with quantum computing, you're trying to do a much more complex task. So you need to do something a little bit more involved uh, than just measuring uh, which way it went. Okay. And so, and, and so Rami, your, your system right now is the, the size of, let's say, a large jumbo <laughs> mobile phone. Um, yeah. How much more work do, do you and your colleagues have to do before you can get it into a, I'm guessing you're, you're looking at a fingernail sized yeah. chip that can be deployed on a mobile phone. Um, is, I mean, is, is there a lot more work to do? I wouldn't say there's a lot more work. There's not, there's not that much more, I would say science to do. It's more, more about doing engineering now is getting the, the actual design, uh, correct in a way that allows us to, again, scale It's getting the manufacturing done appropriately, getting all the testing done. It's more of a matter of time. Semiconductor fabrication takes time and you need to wait until the systems are designed fabricated, packaged, tested, and you usually need to do it a couple of times before you make sure you are sure that this is the sort of architecture that you want to progress with. And I, I think this is sort of the core of uh, the next phase in, in the company. So to figure out exactly what is the best approach to get it down to that miniaturized system. Okay. And and we've spoken about about cryptography as an application, but as I mentioned in the in the introduction, there are other applications for um, for random numbers. I suppose uh, uh, physicists will be familiar with Monte Carlo simulations, which use random numbers. I mean, w once, you know, once you've got this technology miniaturized and, 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 and available, um, are, are there other applications beyond cryptography that you think it could be used for? So we don't actually have to wait until we have completely miniaturized our system. We've already started looking at how we can improve and enhance things like Monte Carlo simulations. In fact, for a long time now, people knew that the quality of randomness can have a specific and measurable impact on the performance of things like Monte Carlo simulations. So simulations methods that heavily rely on 
stochastic approaches or probabilistic approaches. However, there wasn't a lot in the lit lit literature to explain or show what those advantages could really be uh, on a specific scale and most more importantly, what they can be one when you're using something like a quantum random number generator. So what we did was we started a project earlier this year with a major UK bank, as well as a major UK uh, research center for simulations and for numerical methods. And we basically gave them access to our systems and we ran the kind of simulations that they run. And they run a lot of Monte Carlo methods um, to see if we can have any kind of uh, difference, if there's an actual measurable impact. And the great thing is, is that there was. And there was a specific enhancement in the time that it takes for a simulation to find its solution. So the time to conversions, we can reduce that. Uh, and that means you reduce the amount of computational resources that you need to put in. But also, we have a better representation because we are more accurately capturing what the statistical distribution really looks like. And so what was interesting in this project is that now we have quantitative metrics with which we can show, okay, here in simulations, we get this amount of improvement. And just by doing nothing more than replacing the source of random numbers that is being used in those simulations. And so, and after that, of course, uh, well, the, there's so much more that can be done on optimizing and really making sure that these simulations run at the best that they can. And so the door is wide open in this sector, and we really expect it to grow and become quite an important part of our business in the, in, in the coming period. Because uh, here, you don't even need to worry about miniaturization too much. A lot of these computations are already happening in centralized locations in big data centers or big high-performance computing facilities. So this is a, this is a very interesting application, and, and I'm really glad that you mentioned it. And I have to admit that, that I mentioned cryptography and and numerical simulations in the intro because I think those are the only two <laughs> applications of random numbers that I'm really aware of. Are are, are are there other applications or are those the, the two big ones? So I think, I mean, the, there are, of course, a couple of ones that people don't normally think about. But, and to be honest, they're quite uh, not they don't have that big of an impact. So you have things like computer games are used randomness all the time. Uh, things like gambling and uh, uh, lotteries or things where you need some kind of these this random sampling, but they're very low impact applications that are not a particular of not a particular importance. And and where in the application itself the randomness isn't isn't that important. Uh, I think that the more specific applications related to simulations related to cybersecurity is really where you have a lot of critical um, critical eye. Now, of course, there is something else that we are currently working on. I, I, I'm only going to sort of allude to it. It's related to simulations, but uh, it's still something that we're still working on to see whether we can prove an advantage. But that that's a uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that for a for a future podcast, Nick. Ah, okay. Well, that's great. Yeah, when when, when you guys announce that, we'll we'll get you get you back on and yeah. have a chat about it. Well, thanks, Rami. Thanks so much for for talking about um, quantum dice and um, and how the company is uh, improving uh, our stock of random numbers. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Hamish.
There's no doubt that physics is currently enjoying a quantum renaissance, much of which has been driven by the remarkable experimental progress that's been made over the past few decades. This has allowed physicists to create, control, and study delicate quantum systems that were the preserve of theory and thought experiments throughout much of the previous century. The use of lasers to cool atomic gases to near absolute zero temperature while controlling their interactions is one such breakthrough experimental technology. And the evolution of this exciting field has been documented in three feature articles in Physics World by the atomic physicist and popular author Chad Orzel. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, Chad is in conversation with host Andrew Glester, and they chat about the history of laser cooling, exploring some of the experimental triumphs that have led to several Nobel Prizes in physics. That podcast is called Radiant Chills, The Revolutionary Science of Laser Cooling, and you can listen to it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Rami Shalbaya for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week with a conversation with a winner of the 2023 Physics World Breakthrough of the Year Award. Physics World.